So why don't you stand as I read um, our passage for us this morning. It's from Psalm 51. These are God's words. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You can be seated. <clears throat> you know, guilt and shame are awful things to carry around with us. And the reality is that there's not one of us in this church building this morning that um, are not accustomed to, to the weight and the misery that goes along with guilt and shame. You know, Psalm 51 that we just read, it, it contains King David's confession that he has sinned against God and that he stands guilty in the midst of God's holiness. You know, and outside of, outside of David slaying uh, Goliath with his uh, little simple sling, the story that I would say most Christians can recall about David is the one where he has this inappropriate relationship with Bathsheba. And so let's, let's recap that story uh, before we actually dig into the text, Psalm 51. Um, so, so this story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it gives us this step-by-step story of how David goes from good to bad to worse. The story begins with deception right off the bat. When after seeing Bathsheba uh, taking a bath, David, he, he, he can't get her out of his mind. And he starts asking around about her. You know, it's safe to say that David has already committed adultery with Bathsheba in his heart. But it doesn't stop there before things continue. They progress and then physical adultery does take place. And we see David's brain, it's, it's hard at work scheming up this plan to, to sleep with her while, st- while still trying to make it look as though he's this man of integrity and this man of character. And scripture tells us that, that the adulterous uh, uh, act, it happens, and David learns that Bathsheba has become pregnant. And then his mind starts racing on how he can get himself out of this predicament while at the same time keeping face. So he has Uriah. 
you remember the story, Bathsheba's husband, sent home from battle. And when Uriah comes into the presence of the king, David, he continues to put on this facade that he's actually concerned about the well-being of Uriah, about his, uh, his troops that are in battle. When in actuality, the only thing that David wants Uriah to do is to go home and to sleep with his wife. Because you see, if Uriah sleeps with Bathsheba, then David can pass off the child that she is pregnant with as Uriah's instead of his. You see, David's selfishness, it's on full display here. He doesn't think of anyone other than himself. He doesn't think about Bathsheba. He doesn't care about his unborn child. And he obviously doesn't express even the slightest amount of concern for Uriah. However, David does make it look like he does care about them. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 8, David says to Uriah, Go down and go down to your house and wash your feet. Yeah, because David wants the best for Uriah, right? No, he, he, not at all. He doesn't want that. He doesn't even give the slightest consideration to the trauma that Bathsheba has experienced after becoming pregnant with the king's baby. And this is all a result of the lust that he's had for her and doesn't care enough about his child that is in her womb to claim him as his own. You see, David is desperate to manipulate Uriah into helping him get off of the hot seat. And verse 8 tells us that Uriah leaves David's house and that David sends him a present to show how grateful he is for Uriah. I can just picture Uriah leaving and be like, oh, 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 hey, Uriah, come back. I, I got you a little something. Just because. You know, I would have loved to see the look on David's face the following morning when he realizes that Uriah slept on the steps of the palace rather than going home. You know, I believe that actually in that moment that the Lord was extending mercy to David and giving him this opportunity to come clean, but his pride's not about to allow him to do that. And as his integrity disintegrates, Uriah's integrity shines, which only fuels David's rage more and more. You know, Uriah is like, how, how could I possibly go home and enjoy the comforts of my home and the comforts of my wife while my comrades are at war? I can never do that. You know, I can imagine David's eyes are about ready to pop out of his head as he gives this long, dramatic sigh. <sighs> you see, once again, rather than fessing up to his sin, David, he, the story's messed up. David gets Uriah drunk with, with the hopes that he would return to his home and be with his wife, but instead Uriah decides to crash on a couch where David's other servants are sleeping. You know, at this point, David is at a loss. He is desperate to keep his twisted secret safe, so he decides to take care of his problem once and for all. So if you recall, David, he writes a letter to Joab, who is the commander of his army, and he commands Uriah to be put on the forefront of the heaviest fighting so that he'll be killed. You see, David is so desperate to take care of his Uriah problem and to make it go away. He's so determined to preserve his pride that he has the enemy, he has the Ammonites do his dirty work for him. See, David doesn't have the guts to actually kill Uriah himself, so he makes it look as though it was a casualty of war. I can only imagine that Joab was upset that David intentionally killed Uriah uh, because Uriah was one of his best commanders. And here, to no surprise whatsoever, David, once again, does not own his sin. 
But rather, he, he tries to encourage Joab by saying, you know, don't, don't worry about it, Joab. Uriah might have been killed anyway. You know, there was a, a good chance that this could have happened. See, David, he, he committed murder. He committed murder, but he twists this truth to make it look as though he has everyone else's best interests in mind. And in reality, he doesn't care about Bathsheba. He doesn't care about his unborn child. He doesn't care about Joab. He doesn't care about his army. He certainly doesn't care about Uriah. David cares about David. You see, David managed to deceive everyone. He did. He, he pulled it off. He deceived everyone. Except for one individual, one God. You see, the, the Lord saw this whole disgusting scene unfold before his eyes, and he knew the wickedness that was in David's heart that he was trying so desperately to conceal. So the Lord sends Nathan to rebuke David of his sin. In 2 Samuel 12, 9-12, Nathan asked David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You see, friends, Nathan makes it abundantly clear for us in this statement, which is our first point this morning, is that the Lord does not take sin lightly. Sin is a violation of our relationship with God. Theologian Walter Brueggemann writes, the problem is that sin violates God. This does not mean that others are not also hurt, but the righting of the wrong concerns the godness of God and none other. Now, I don't know if David had legitimately forgotten about the justice of God or if he had deceived himself into thinking that he could keep his sin hidden from him, but at Nathan's rebuke, David's response is, I've sinned against the Lord. You see, for David, there is this acknowledgement, there's this, this taking of ownership that the wrong falls squarely on David's shoulders. Friends, you and I, eventually, sooner or later, we're going to have to answer to God. Sooner or later, we must deal with God. You know, even if we convince ourselves and everyone else around us that our sinful thoughts and our actions are justifiable, we're still not going to be able to sell this lie to God. Psalm 33, 13 through 15 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Friends, we will come face to face with the God of the universe. My mom used to say that we're only as sick as our secrets. You know, and just like King David, the the harder we try to keep our secret sins under lock and key, the worse it's going to get. 
And in Psalm 51, we find both David's confession and, and our template for confession before the Lord. You know, as we hear David's confession so honestly laid out throughout this psalm, we arrive at our, our next point, which is that God is always in the right. God is always in the right. You know, in a, a few passages, I'm going to read a few passages to you that, that speak to the righteousness of God, to the way that he is right and the way he conducts life, are found in 2 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul tells us that for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Likewise, 1 John 3, 5 reads that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Isaiah 53, 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, God is always in the right, even when his actions seem unreasonable to us. You know, far too often we bank on God's grace and just go about downplaying and dismissing our sin with, well, I know I shouldn't, but I know I shouldn't do this, or I shouldn't think that, or I shouldn't talk about this person, or I shouldn't look at her this way, or I shouldn't wish that, he, that, that my husband was more like him, but, but, but. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, in the first two verses. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? You know, I like the way that the King James Version puts it. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. See, God is never casual about sin. And to continue living as though he was casual about it, it's not going to end well for us. You see, sin has its repercussions, especially if that sin is unconfessed. Mark Young, who is the the president of Denver Seminary, writes that we must be sure to avoid two mistakes in thinking about God's mercy. First, we must never separate God's mercy and his justice. God always judges sin, and the penalties of his justice are real. Second, we must not see God's judgment as just an act of doom and retribution. God's response to sin is never driven by a need to get even, but by his desire that humans find the fullness of life in knowing and worshiping him. See, the Lord does not let unconfessed sin slide, but he does make it possible for the repentant sinner, to come back into his presence. You see, in order for this to take place, our confession must cease sin for the pain that it causes to both God and to others. In verse 4, when David says, against you, you only have I sinned, he's not saying that others were not hurt in the process, because clearly they were. Try explaining that one away to Uriah. But he's saying that God is the ultimate judge for our sin. And David says that he will comply with whatever those just terms are. You see, in reality, David doesn't need to agree to God's terms because the creator doesn't need the permission of the creation to do what he's going to do. 
However, by putting his sin on full display before God, rather than trying to conceal it, David is appealing to God's nature for forgiveness. David is asking God to do for him what he can't do for himself. And when God judges, and when God judges, Excuse me, when God justly judges David in 2 Samuel 12, David doesn't make excuses. He doesn't run and hide. He embraces that judgment by taking ownership of his sin. You see, with God, there is always justice and there is always mercy and grace. I like the way that one uh, pastor from Wisconsin says it. He, he describes these three things this way. He says that justice gives you what you deserve. Mercy does not give you all that you deserve. And grace gives you what you don't deserve. You see, when we resist confessing our sin or only give God a a half-hearted confession, we don't receive the full restoration that the Lord offers us. You know, if we twist our sin to make it appear as though it's not really as bad as it actually is, then we're, we're left powerless to only try and hide our sin and its negative effects from others. You know, every one of us, myself included, is, is guilty of doing this from time to time. You know, for others of us, it's this never-ending, exhausting, soul-destroying way of life. You know, over time, the, the shame and the guilt that we have, the shame that we experience on our inside, it wears down the smile that we're trying so hard to keep on the outside. And we actively choose to live with our shame because we don't trust that God can take it away. We do not trust that he can take that shame away, so we hold on to it. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis writes, I sometimes think that shame, mere awkward, senseless shame, does as much towards preventing good acts and straightforward happiness as any of our vices can do. You see, if, if the shame that we carry around with us night and day is going to disappear, then we need to allow our Savior to start from scratch. It's not enough to ask for forgiveness. There must be a change of heart, a revitalized spirit, or we're going to continue to sin again and again and again. That's why David requests, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, the heart that David's talking about is not the organ inside of our chest, not the organ inside of his chest, but but rather he's asking God to give him a change of attitude and the change in the way that he thinks about life. See, David's plea continues when he asks God to not cast him away from his presence and to take not his Holy Spirit from him. You know, David has made an absolute mess of his life and he's fearful of losing everything. He's fearful of losing what God has given him. You know, I'm sure it was fresh in his mind the way that the way that God had stripped the kingdom away from Saul, and it was afraid that he would be in that same boat. Yet even more so, I think David was petrified at the the thought of his relationship with God completely falling apart. You know, maybe it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway that that when we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit never leaves us never, ever leaves us. If we've made a a genuine confession of faith that Christ is Lord, then his Holy Spirit isn't going anywhere. 
I feel like I have to say amen to that. Because when we, when we live our lives, when we're, we're full of unconfessed sin, it's going to feel like the Holy Spirit has left us high and dry. You know, if it feels as though the Holy Spirit is no longer living inside of you, then I'd say that there's a high probability that God has set you aside from serving him until your faith gets back on track. See, this is where David was at with God following his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. The power of God that enabled David to lead so well had been taken from him, and and he realizes it. He realizes that he has this need for full forgiveness. You know, ironically, David vows to teach, he vows to worship and make appropriate sacrifices, but these are the exact things that that God is, is taking away from him. These are things that he cannot do until he has fully received forgiveness. You know, and I'm interested to know how many of us are slogging our way through through this life, trying to be obedient to Christ while simultaneously refusing to repent of certain sins. You know, maybe you haven't confessed your sin because you don't allow yourself to slow down enough to actually think about it, to actually process it, to actually ask God for it, and then to listen for his forgiveness. Perhaps the sin that you're living in is an acceptable one in our culture, and so you choose to downplay the wickedness of it. Maybe you don't believe that God actually has the power to forgive you. So question, why why are you clinging so tightly to that specific sin? What is that sin doing for you? Well, that answer to that question is that it's keeping you from doing the one thing that God designed you to do. It's keeping you from worshiping him. David writes, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Friends, you know, as our our world continues to implode, and it is, you know, it's easy to, to pass that off like things are the same. They're not. Our, our world is falling apart. So we need to stop playing church. God wants us on our knees. We need to be emptied of ourselves. Our selfish spirits need to be shattered and our sinful hearts need to be broken if we're going to begin again on God's terms. You know, I think, I think the thrust of this psalm is to point out the seriousness of our sin the responsibility that we must take for our sin and the possibility of new life that is found only in Jesus Christ. You know, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. See, God, he, he joyfully receives a penitent sinner. He doesn't, he doesn't do it begrudgingly. God does not receive you back begrudgingly. He does it joyfully. You know, David, he ends the psalm with these words, do good to Zion and your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. 
Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, you see, as the redeemed people of Israel, you and I have been collectively given this mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ to therefore go and make more disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be effective in the mission that Jesus gave us, then it's imperative that each one of us are emptied of ourselves and renewed by the Holy Spirit for the service of our King. So if you hear nothing else, hear this. Take your sin seriously. Own up to every bit of it. Confess the mess in your life. And Jesus will give you a joy-filled, peace-filled, gospel power, new life in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the humanity of your servant, David. And I say that in a way that um, his humanity gives me hope for myself. Um, His humanity gives me hope for our world. Um, Lord, David was, um, he demonstrated so well what it looks like to own, own his sin and to confess that and to turn from it. Lord, the, the peace that he found in you, the joy that he found in you following that repentance, Lord, is something that you make possible through your son, Jesus, for every one of us that is facing shame and guilt and insecurity and a life that is just wrought with sin. Lord, would your Holy Spirit strengthen your church now, God, by calling them to confess their sin and to know that once it's been forgiven, God, that you wipe their slate clean and, God, that you put your name on them, your stamp of approval is on them, God, and that they can go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit like your Son Jesus commissioned us to do. Lord, I thank you for the healing that comes in and through your Son Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.